Welcome to the Banter at the Counter podcast here at Phone Savers in Killarney. I'm John Lynch and I'll be bringing you fun and insights from everyday customers, inspiration from entrepreneurs and from my own life journey. So come on in and join me as I deep dive into the secrets of life and success. Today, uh, who we have is an Olympic skier who actually came 31st out of 83 contestants in the Alpine Great Giant Slalom sorry, event in Torino, in Turin, in Italy in 2006, and also came second in the Scottish Championships, I think, uh, am, am I correct? So, folks, without any further ado, Olympian, Tass Foley, welcome to Banter the Counter. Thank you. So, Tass, like... You come from Kinmare, right? Um, like, growing up in Kinmare and having ideas about skiing in the Olympics doesn't come to everybody in Kinmare. In fact, it doesn't come to anybody pretty naturally. Why did you choose this? Um, when I was a young boy, the rally used to pass by the house, uh, you know, right, right next door around the Rookty, and it still does, actually. And uh, I always thought, I want to be a rally driver when I grew up. And um, I suppose I was just uh, attracted by the exhilaration and the excitement. So I set about always uh, on my bike, imitating like a lot of kids, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, the noise yeah. and jumping off things. And then it went from climbing trees to jumping off walls and then to kayaking and wakeboarding. And it wasn't enough. I, I guess I never had a, a culture of cars around me, uh, although my grandfather was a mechanic. Um, and, uh, well, look, you know, you, obviously it's, it was the idea of exhilaration that attracted me and that's how I ended up skiing really ultimately. So we all kind of have like ideas, you know, I mean, thoughts across our mind, I want to become a rally driver, I want to join the circus, whatever it might mm. be, you know, I mean, you know, climb the, the highest mountain and stuff, but to fulfill these dreams, it takes something like you have to be nearly obsessed or be average, don't you? Uh, I would say I'm definitely. I was definitely obsessed. Uh, I think that um, there were so many times. I mean, I started uh, skiing on holidays uh, with our family. We work in tourism, like a lot of people. You come from business background, Tass. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, 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 your family owns a restaurant. Am I correct? Uh, yeah. Or so I grew up uh, around uh, the pub business and just. Uh, laterally more so the food like daytime food business my auntie had a place and my mom uh, worked there for many years with Gronia and she was always busy setting up a restaurant or other or a new business so over the years in Kenmare um, I was always involved with that side of things so it was very intense in the summer uh, with no opportunity for holidays Uh, it was just shoulder to the wheel and uh, get stuck in Make yeah. the money in the summer, you know, harvest away like a hard mean, work. Like uh, it was good work and har- yeah. you know it was, it was fun work. And uh, I got into working uh, in the business at a very young age, uh, around thirteen. And then uh, I would save. I would always save up my money for something or other. And you know, by the time I was sixteen, um, we'd already been in a couple of uh, winter holidays uh, with the family and. I suppose people were noticing that I was pretty good at it. Like, so it was just sort of, you went on holidays and, and you, you fell in love with skiing, right? 
that sort of that is exactly at what age, age yeah. like 10 to 14 uh, well, I remember going out at 10 on my first trip, and yeah. uh, the first two days were pretty pretty hard going, and I often recount this when I'm instructing to young people or students, because I'm a, a coach as well, Great. and I would say, look, you know, I remember what it was like the first two days when I was skiing, I didn't really like it very much, because my sisters were both skiing already, and they were better than me, and I... <laughs> And I didn't like that too much, so uh, no, it was tough going. And w- once you got familiar with the equipment, I was off. And yeah. when I say I was off, like it is, skiing is an incredible, uh, exhilarating sport. There's nowhere else where you can, um, where you are completely responsible for your own well-being and safety to the extent you are when you put on a pair of skis and you go to the top of the mountain. No amount of bravado or anything is going to save you. You literally have to be reliant on yourself. And I guess I was always pushing the boundaries as a kid in Ireland, you know. And then it just, for me, it opened up a whole new world of uh, possibilities on the, in the slopes and the mountains in France where we would go. And, you know, I would always be challenging myself. And every day was a new challenge. So there was no limit to how far, well, I didn't see any limit how far you could take that challenge you know I was watching ski movies of great skiers and they were very, all very inspirational it seems like you're nearly jumping out of a, an aircraft without a parachute or something I could just I, I was watching the Olympics last night uh, to get a bit of a feed because I don't ski and um, to be honest I, I nearly welled up I thought that's some something else like to even go skiing is one thing but to go off and represent your country I mean before that before that though to get there in Ireland, right, to to go from Kinmare to skiing in the Winter Olympics, that's a massive that's a massive bridge to bridge. Like by yourself, I mean, did you have support? Was it were you the you were the first man to represent Ireland in the Winter Olympics in skiing? I wasn't the first man um, in the giant slalom. Like, yeah, I don't think there was anyone else that did the giant slalom. My friend Pauli uh, Schwarzacker. Pauli Schwarzacker Joyce, a really lovely man. Um, he's uh, he grew up in Saint Anton, and his mom's from Clontarf. A lovely lady, Mary. And um, well, I suppose how we first got to meet each other was um, in Kiltiernan, where there is a ski centre. The artificial ski school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we both uh, met up there for we'd arranged to meet at the Irish Championships just to uh, become acquainted. Because Pauli had a had a scheme in in his head. Okay, what was the scheme? <laughs> so <laughs> I was just starting racing, and I was uh, I had my uh, license uh, for about a year. Your first license? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Pauli, at that stage, I don't think he'd done an Olympics. That was in nineteen nine two thousand. So he was like myself. Uh, you know, he was breaking down the barriers and. Um, looking to to uh, to go to go forward in skiing, you know, he grew up in, in a place where, again, his playground was Saint Anton, okay. and it's a very serious skiing there. Okay. So uh, he rang me before the world, uh, before the Irish Championships, and said, "Oh, hello, how are you? My name's Pauli. Um, how are you getting on? I see that you do a little bit of downhill ski racing." I was like, yeah, a little bit, you know. I mean, I did the first ever fist race I did was in British Championships in teen, and it was a downhill. And downhill is essentially um, you're following the line of the slope 
and there are gates, but the speeds are much higher. Yeah. So you'd be racing down at, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, even, you know, up to 90 miles per hour, Jesus. yeah? And um, so Pauli said, there's this race in America called the 24 Hours of Aspen. Would you be up for coming with me? So I said, yeah, that sounds cool. So you went up to Aspen? Uh, yeah, we... Uh, Pauli had it all arranged, and in fact... Uh, there were 12 teams and it was a 24-hour event. So it was like, a, it's a special event. This is outside of World Cup or FIS. It was uh, sponsored by Audi and it was, a, it was for a charity race. So there were various different benefactors. Um, and the money was shared, uh, you know, for these different groups. Um, the concept was that you took uh, 12 teams and the teams had a pair and you race for 24 hours down Ajax Mountain, and that's about a 17-minute gondola ride. And for most people, that would probably be about a half an hour ski, you know, with a couple of stops along the way and yeah. admire the scenery, a couple of photographs and that. <laughs> but uh, we were doing it about two and a half minutes or to, to, to our, uh, two, two minutes and 50, I think, was, would be about the slowest time, but the track was getting faster and faster as we went along. Because so it ice was, is up, does it ice up? Yeah, in this particular like instance, it it was very icy because yeah. there were twelve teams skiing around, and I think we did seventy two laps on the gondola. And um, like I said, uh, Pauli uh, didn't know me, and he didn't know my ability or anything. And he had a guy who was going to race with him, who wasn't Irish, but one of the criteria was that you could still race under the Irish flag, even if it was just one person from that nation. So. Uh, he had a friend who was going to join him, but he was injured, and so I was drafted in. And I think Pauli got a bit of a shock the first day when he uh, when he saw me going up on skis in uh, in in Aspen. There was a problem with my with my brake, a technical problem, so it slowed me down significantly. And there was a question as to whether this guy was actually good enough to do the race. <laughs> <laughs> But it was equipment, it wasn't me, you know, I mean, I had no problem. So once I got that resolved, uh, we were off and we yeah. did very well. Like, you know, uh, we were considered the exotic nation. It's quite funny to be considered exotic when you're coming from Ireland. Was that sort of like with the, similar to the, the bobsleigh team but from Jamaica? Or actually, the Ireland, Ireland had a bobsleigh team, didn't they? As well? But yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah, Ireland have had a bobsleigh team and they've had a skeleton team and... Um, Clifton Rottersley, um, he placed fourth in the Salt Lake Olympics where Pauli uh, also competed. So Pauli was the first man that I know to compete uh, in the Winter Olympics. There was there was maybe others in the past. Um, but like that, for me, it's all about what's happening in the present moment. Yeah. And I don't really, I don't look back at the history so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really, uh, I'm inspired by people who, who are living more course, so yeah. than... Um, than, than history of things in the past because I suppose in order to bring about change and break down the barriers uh, like you said a Ken Merriman skiing at the Olympics it was a unusual journey and that was one of the, the key points there when I started with the 24 hours of Aspen in, um, in, in 2000 so That kind of set you off when did, it, when did the Olympics come into your, your, your view? What you wanted to, Did you say geez, I'm going to go for the Olympics here Yeah well I guess um, so I didn't come from a racing background, yeah. but I really loved free skiing. Does that would, matter, Toss? Sorry, does that matter? Like, is there, you know, 
Unfortunately, is there some sort of pedigree for this? I mean, we know that the Swiss are great, whatever, you know, Austrians. I think. I mean, does it help that you come from a, a lineage of skiers? or? I think ultimately uh, it does matter. Okay. Um, there's a certain confidence that you can draw on from a lifetime of experience in, in racing. But if you have the feeling and you have courage, um, you can make up a lot for um, maybe a lack of, uh, of, of, you know, base level training. Uh, or you can also dedicate yourself and work really hard and get the base level training at a later stage, which is what I did. So you um, kind of, did you make up for the, the fact that you didn't have the support maybe? that you needed did you say oh yeah I'm not getting what everybody else is getting I'm going to have to work harder you're like um, I guess so but I never looked at it from the point of view I'm not getting what everybody else isn't but getting but I don't mean that in a sense yeah. of entitlement sort mm. of like you know if it's not there it's not there like yeah, or did, we, were you supported in any way like? I was supported for sure yeah. yeah I mean there were times when um, you know first of all my parents supported me greatly of course, yeah, uh, that, yeah. I remember writing to my mum and dad uh, my idea was I said, after the leaving cert, I said, oh, I want to go skiing, take a year out. I don't, I'm really not interested in going to college just yet to do uh, business studies or accounting or something like that in, in I think it was in, in, in Galway. And I didn't see myself as an accountant. Um, so they, they said, look, maybe maybe don't take the year out, but maybe you could do something for the summer you know they had friends of ours who were uh, going on a summer camp it was like a a one month uh, skiing trip and that was in New Zealand so I was really really blessed that my parents were willing to spend money to try and keep me on the right path so that come September or October I'd go into college and that'd be the end of that so it wasn't the end of that it was just the beginning yeah. and that's where I met my friend Angus in New Zealand on that trip and I committed to the skiing from that point on, and um, uh, my mum and dad supported me uh, initially in the earlier years, and then uh, I started, as I progressed through the ranks, there was assistance there from the Sports Council and the Ski Association of Ireland. Uh, it, for sure it wasn't uh, substantial, uh, but I appreciated it. Uh, course, yeah. I also got a little uh, uh, donation from... Uh, my past school as well that was really really well appreciated so you know I used to work you know I'd work and save up the money and I suppose uh, there were times when um, I felt I felt like uh, this is mad like I'm putting all this uh, energy and effort to represent Ireland um, and I'm not necessarily getting the the funding and I'm still uh, trying to, to, to struggle that but I think that was just me sort of listening to other people were saying you should be getting funded you should be this i didn't really i was doing my thing i chose to be a skier i chose to do that there is no pathway for funding or anything like that so look whatever i got i was really grateful for it and it yeah. allowed me to continue doing what i love so you know happy days and you, you made it happen like you, yeah. you know like so the preparation for the olympics must have been must have been something else i mean it take that's a commitment where you where you know you know it's going to be a commitment. You're, you're sort of going into battle here for four years before the Olympics. Obviously, I don't know how long the preparation would last, but you're at a disadvantage because you didn't come from the sea, the ski slopes of of Switzerland for number mm -hmm, one, mm -hmm. and you didn't have you know our mountains aren't covered with snow every morning. Number two, 
you know, uh, and, and so you're going to have to get yourself there. You're going to have to train. I mean, did you go to Switzerland? Did you train? What happened? Uh, so I guess just really briefly to kind of recap on how the, the season goes. Uh, start from about the age of 18, 1998, when I finished school. I started doing ski seasons, and pe- a lot of people will be familiar with that. You know, you go out for the winter, uh, maybe around Christmas time, December, and you ski till April get a season pass and in the middle of that I would have been going to races and I would have been working a little bit and traveling about uh, and developing and the further I got into it the the longer the season became so uh, instead of just starting December you would go I would go to um, Austria in October and ski on the glacier for a couple of months and you'd have uh, we, we, I was working with a coach there in Austria in Pitztal. Uh, he was living near Innsbruck. He was a really lovely man. I would stay in his house there with my friend Angus. And um, gradually you just develop your, you, you kind of shape, a little bit like the footballers, you know, you look at the season, you're like, okay, when do you want to peak? You do your base training and you do all your fitness training earlier on in the year. So we'd be in the gym four or five days a week at least. And then you'd be ready for kind of December time you'd be starting to get it, get into it. And then the bulk of the races are happening between December and March. Um, and you need to be on form for it. Mm. And um, that uh, year that we were going for the Olympics, I mean, I had, I, had int- I had ideas and notions of going to the Olympics in 2002, but obviously Pauli was a much better skier than I was. Um, so I knew that it was possible. I knew what the criteria were, and I knew that I could get there. And uh, I just set about, you know, uh, each and every race, just like we said at the earlier part of the conversation, just, you know, a new challenge, a new day, go out, break the boundaries. And uh, then at first it was a bit funny, oh, you're from Ireland, right, yeah. And then, uh, you know, it wasn't so funny after a while when, you know, you start moving up the ranks. And I did, I did progress up the ranks, not to a very high level, but to a good level. Yeah, I mean, you're in the top 30%. You came 32nd. I mean, that's a massive, massive achievement. Like, I mean, yeah. the best in the world. I mean, when I was watching this, this Olympic thing last night, 2006 Olympics, for me anyway, you know, I just thought it must be an amazing thing to to put on the Irish colours and stand for your country. And I mean, what, what thoughts would run through? What emotions would run through your head? I mean, it must stick in your memory, like. Yeah, like, I mean, the opening ceremony, I think, was the thing that really stands out for me. Just being um, in 2006, we were in Turin. So uh, that, the, the set, I think it was um, Juventus have a stadium there, I think. Um, Ian, you would know that. Uh, so we were in this stadium and next to it, there was a little holding area. So we're watching on the big screen all the athletes as they go out into the into the stadium. It's a big televised event. Everyone watches it. You know, it's very spectacular, all the entertainment and the show. and um, Pavarotti sang, I think. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, uh, we were right up there. So you're in the holding area and you're watching on telly and suddenly uh, you're caught, your, na- your nation is called. Like So you're watching for half an hour while, you know, America and, you know, all the countries and they go out and, like, you're watching America for like 10 minutes and then you see like uh, Azerbaijan and there's one or two guys and you know what I mean? It's like uh, all the nations are there, you know? Yeah. And um, 
some teams are vast and more are, are tiny. And uh, there was a small delegation of us. It was about uh, six or eight of us all together. And um, it was Kirsty McGarry who was the flag bearer. She was uh, racing uh, in, in Turin as well. And uh, a very close friend of mine uh, and the family, they were really instrumental in, in, in bringing me into the sport on a, you know, on a, more, on a more serious level. So just arriving into the Olympic Stadium... And I had my friend, my best friend and racing buddy, Angus, as my coach. They didn't actually have a coach at the Olympics. It was, uh, it was my racing pal. Wow. And um, he was looking after me. And uh, we were blown away. Just uh, You come into the stadium and it was vast and uh, it was very exciting. And uh, watching Pavarotti singing uh, was definitely, I think it was one of his last performances. Mm. So that was pretty special too, you know, and uh, I have really, really great memories of the excitement and exuberation of meeting all the different athletes. I've, you know, there was a little thing that you change, you exchange uh, little uh, badges. So I've got all these little badges everywhere. It's really, really cool, you know. Cool, yeah. Like, I, when I was, I was reading a bit of your story and I just had pictures of you going over in a, a, an old Volkswagen Beetle camper van and... Next thing you got Bodie Miller pulling up in his the board mobile, you know, <laughs> or whatever you call it, you know. But uh, it must have been a bit intimidating. I mean, or was it, or or, or had you gone past that stage? Like, um, well, Bodie's a really cool guy. Um, you know, I don't know him very well, but uh, the you know Darren Rouse and a lot of the athletes. Well, I think they're when you reach a level in sport where you're achieving greatness uh, like Bodie Miller and Herman Meyer uh, and and say Alberta Tomba I suppose there's many more um, Luc Alphon is another one as well these are he's he's done the Paris Dakar Luc Alphon he used to race as a skier as well mm. um, you don't really there's no barriers there's no boundaries they'll take you as you are you know whether you're you know, a shit kicker from Kerry, <laughs> or, or you know, or uh, you know Benny Reich from Austria, who's had everything laid out for him, and this is his destiny to be the best racer. You know, yeah. um, and uh, there's there's a great camaraderie uh, when you go and you're surrounded by great athletes, and you're in that zone. There's a kind of an intense feeling. It's it's different from a lot of other sports where you know you you have two teams who line up and they're opposing and you have you have the guy who's next to you so I would have played a lot of team sports there's a team atmosphere but it's an individual competition so I think does that help? it does help because there's certainly a lot more failures than there are uh, successes with ski racing yeah there's a lot of things can go wrong uh, you know there's um a lot of variables, and that's what makes it really challenging. You know, the, each, every track, like we talked about earlier, the track can get really rutted. It could be a bit foggy. Um, you know, you might have a little bit of an equipment issue with your gear. And so you're, you know, you're, you're relying on your training partners who you train with, but ultimately you're competing against them as well. So I suppose it was for me, it was often about the exhilaration again, and I do believe that that's... Partly what drove me was perhaps uh, an addiction to the exhilaration. Yeah, 
When I was researching this and after listening, you know what comes up, up in my mind is uh, I remember Ayrton Senna was doing a lap of Monte Carlo, right? Mm. And I'd be sort of into the psychology of things a bit. And he reckons that he wasn't really driving the car around is the best lap he did. Like he was so at one with what he was doing that his thought process stopped, you know? Like I was kind of thought, is that what it is with, with people that go for stuff like this? I mean, this is this is, takes a massive commitment. Is it for the search of the buzz of like going down a hill and doing it so much and being at one with things so much that you just love being in that zone? Like, do you get what I'm trying to say? I do. So I've been chatting with a friend of mine about this recently. And um, it's difficult to come to terms with that. And we're getting into the meaty part of the conversation yeah, now, yeah, you know. Yeah, I've, yeah. We've talked about the accolades in the past and whatever, but... Which are important, you know. Which I mean, are important, yeah. you know. And um, I suppose the my reality is that, uh, you know, we have lots of things happen in our life. You know, there's business, there's family. I have a beautiful family. I have two kids and uh, with Sophie, a beautiful woman. And at the same time, you know, there's a sense of pressure and obligation around you and whether it's expectation at a certain point in sport, like that, oh, you're in the Olympics now, you know, you need to do this and you need to do that. And, oh, sure, you're doing this and all these other factors that are happening around you. And with the sport... And when you really push your body to the limit, there was no two minutes ago and there's no future. Mm. It's just that precise moment in time where everything that you're doing has a direct impact on, you know, your um, where you are. Uh, so if you're hurtling down the hill, you can't be thinking about um, your bank account or, you know, how you're going to uh, pay for this, that or the other and... You know what your what your relationship is like at the moment because you know you 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 know I suppose there is a sort of selfishness to a pursuit. I think anybody who who uh, progresses in sport is really single minded, and you have to be, I guess, and that's something that we're brought up with. You know, it's all about winning, and you got to push, push, push. Uh, but uh, I suppose in that journey, I realised actually that uh, perhaps the uh, addiction to the moment was where it was at. To be in that state of mind where you're totally present, where like you said about Art and Senna, you're not feeling, you're not consciously thinking, oh, I must do this and must do that. No, you don't. You you feel your way. You're in the zone. And that is it. People say you're in the zone and what that is what it means by in the zone you're in the moment and uh, your body is prepared your mind is prepared and you know you, you're you're expressing yourself um in, in the moment so like like just picture you standing out ready to go <clears throat> for uh, on the on the slopes ready to take your your race for, for the olympics right and what's going through your mind like well, you're prepared, like you're really prepared for this. Everything checked, your gear checked. Mm. I don't know what it's like there. You know, is it iced up a bit if you got things going through your mind? Yeah, it was, it was really, really uh, intense. Um, so, first off, there are two runs to do. And 
I don't remember so much the first run, more the second one. Um, at the start gate, I would have been in the top 40, so I was watching the reverse top 30. So the reverse top 30, in order to build the, the excitement of the race, uh, effectively the leaders of the race were just going a few uh, racers ahead of me. And I'd never experienced that. To be in a major event where Herman Meyer is warming up like two or three The Herminator. The Herminator, yeah, yeah. An amazing guy. God, he won't... Yeah, yeah. And Benny Reich and Bodie Miller and all... uh, There was, you know, it was just... And the Italian guys were there too. And you're standing up uh, very, I would say... It was a, one of the longest races in the history of uh, alpine skiing in terms of giant slalom. It was, uh, it was about a two and a half minute course, and um, so the the distances apart were massive. It was very unusual. Uh, I watched um, one of the best skiers in the world go down uh, from Norway. Um, in the earlier part, you know, because there's quite a lot of racers, and I and I thought he looked like Bambi on ice, and I said, "Whoa, no, man! If he looks, if he looks that rugged, I mean, how am I going to get down here? How am I going to manage?" It was like uh, the piece had been prepared uh, with injected water and fertilizer. They use fertilizer, and it's all artificial snow. Really? Yeah, it's super compacted. A race piece in order to keep it um, firm, and it's because it's raced on all season long. Yeah, uh, it's have you ever met slopes like this before? Uh, oh yeah, okay. I, did, I have done, but yeah. not not like this. They wanted it to be the best, and it was the super best. complex. It was super long. It was really really icy, and it was very very challenging. Jeez. So, I was I was at the start uh, watching these guys kick out the gate, knowing that okay, it'll be my turn soon, and. You know, you're thinking about the journey, everything that it's taking you to get here. You know, you're thinking about your equipment and, you know, my family were there. Sophie was there. My mom and dad were there. I managed to, we managed to get tickets. That's a whole other story. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, to, you're the ticket story. We managed to get tickets. Yeah, but the, anyway, look, I'm not even going to go there. You must have been able for that coming from a GA country. I mean, look, I'm not even going to go there. It was, it was a whole other story. I was delighted that my family were able to be there to watch me uh, take stage, and I feel proud of you. Like, like yeah, yeah, and there, you know, there's. I knew at that point when I was at the start that it didn't matter if uh, Toss Foley skied down and put down the best ever run, you know, and I risked, you know, crashing out. There were so many. Uh, the, the course was so tough and it was so icy. I just said, right, get down. Just get down. That's enough. Like, don't be the hero. You know, accept what you have here today and, you know, give it your best. Like, uh, you know, you're talking about a a really long, long run and and get down. And, um, you know... Were you you going to window in the back of your head? No, 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 no. no, I suppose, like... My definition of winning is different from other people's definition of winning. Uh, you don't set out to be a ski racer and ex- from Kerry and expect that you're going to win the Olympics. It was a personal journey, and it was about breaking boundaries. If I wanted to be a winner, I would have stayed playing rugby. 
or playing football. That's a good point. You know, yeah. I was play. I was coached by some great coaches. I was coached by Mickey Ned in minors, and you know, it wasn't carry material. But I mean, I suppose I was a late developer in sport. I was really interested in sport, and I played uh, rugby at school as well on the senior cup team in Castleknock. Um, coached by Mick Quinn. So I was year-round training. Um, so all those things that I'd done over the years, whether it's jumping off walls or, you know, Coming into suicide or, you know, like endless training sessions with Mickey Ned or cross-training out in the rowing and, you know, cycling, doing triathlon, all these different things and kung fu, all those things combined together just to prepare me for that moment. And the Olympics is the one that people want to know about. They don't want to know about everything else. It is a brand. But it's the spirit of the Olympics. Mm. That's what people want. And I think the spirit of the Olympics is about creating those unusual situations where, you know, just by pure determination and stubbornness, and I would say a great degree of selfishness, that you pursue uh, a path that everyone's saying, that's just ridiculous. What are you doing that for? I've had people say that to me. What are you doing? What's that skiing business? Oh, well, if you don't go on skiing, would you ever play football? Like sure, that's fucking nonsense. <laughs> you go away on out of that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Get a grip of yourself. No, so look, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, there's the doubters. And, uh, so I, the doubters were put to bed that day when you're facing the slope, like, as you said. Look, it's, you it's, it's like you're in the zone, you're in the moment, and once you kick out the gate, poof, there's a huge surge of adrenaline, and then you're in it. And every 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 second, and you're off. You're you know you're not you're there's such a level of focus. It's so precise and it's so it's so uh, there is nothing else. That's a massive thing to say. Like there's nothing else. Like yeah, and that's that's difficult to stop. You know so. There's nearly a lot could be said about what you just said there, but it's hard to put words on it, like. Look, we can put words on it if you like. Um, I think the idea of our conversation today is to get the story untold, really, uh, John. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, but still, you're, you're coming down that slope and you're, you're nearly at one with everything again, right? And when did... Finish the end of the race for us. No, finish the end of the, your, your run. So, there's about, I suppose, 50, 60, 70 gates. It just seemed like an endless forest of gates. And there was a lot of uh, cambers, that side cambers. Uh, very difficult to get grip. So, you know, by the time you're halfway down, you're you're coming to uh, Ridgeline and you you must remember exactly the course. So you've done an inspection that's before the race and you know exactly the, the angle that you have to take and trying to remember, it'd be like trying to remember the bends in a race course, but I guess it's it's slightly different because the track will be different after each skier or, you know, it could be more icy after 50 or 60 guys go down. And So you're just constantly battling your way to stay in, to stay in good position. You've got to use all your resources and your strength and keep keep focused and uh, you have to improvise on the way down sort of because you well, don't know what you meet like because it's not like you ski down that's it lads do you know you're constantly fighting to stay in balance that's effectively okay. skiing is about balance and you know you do everything you train everything you do is about training for balance and so 
being in the front of your skis and driving the skis, they're super, super sharp. Like, it's like a samurai sword, the edges of your skis, in order to hold the grip on the, on the ice. Um, and by the time I got down, well, it was just uh, a huge, huge release, really, just to get over the finish line. Thomas Foley, Ireland, you know, uh, there, and just to see the flags waving up in this in 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 the stadium and to be still part of it. I mean, it was a, a huge, huge buzz. I mean, there's a huge, there's no question about it. It was a massive, massive feeling of exhilaration, and and I think there was a, a sense of achievement there at that point when I said, "No one, nobody, nobody can ever take this away from me." You know, yeah. and that's the beauty about Olympics too, because. It's a defining thing where, you know, you understand yourself that you have achieved something great. And like, <clears throat> afterwards, was there, was there a downer afterwards? Forgive the pun. Um, well, in 2006, um, there was really a downer. I mean, I was um, obviously finished out the season um Sophie went back to Ireland and my family went back. Uh, I had a two year, my son was two at the time. And uh, now I had to sort of figure out, right, okay, uh, pick up the pieces. I need to pay my coach. <laughs> I need to, <laughs> Credit card you know, finish me. off this, that and the other. And I ended up, uh, you know, there was fierce excitement at home in Kenmare. And there was, for me, I didn't know how to deal with that. It's like, well, I, I didn't set out to be the centre of attention and uh, there was fierce excitement at home. And I remember a businessman at the time, he's like, oh, you must come home to Ireland. We'll do something for you. We'll do something for you in Kerry. And I was like, oh, that, I, don't know if, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, I definitely didn't feel kind of worthy of any kind of celebration. I didn't feel like I, there was anything special. You know, I, I, I didn't, for me, I wasn't, it felt wrong that we should be glorifying it, you know. Uh, I think that uh, we're all special and we all have great things. I think there's a societal thing that kind of likes a bit of hero worshipping and I didn't feel like any hero or anything like that. Um, especially because, you know, there's a it comes at a personal cost as well. Like, you know, I mentioned my, my son and mm. Sophie, they were living in Ireland and I was pursuing my dream, you know. Um, so, yeah, I remember figuring wondering how i'm going to pay for all this i think i owed my coach around six grand and uh my friend angus uh and i we worked in geneva that summer uh following the season so um i ended up recuperating a nice bit of cash there i was cleaning boats power washing servicing mechanics all that kind of stuff uh they were just they were restored for the winter and we were putting them out in the water and uh, you know I'm not skilled at or anything but I was just it's good wage in Switzerland so it was enough to get to pay back that and well I suppose you're going to say well what's next yeah I mean <laughs> you know what I mean what's like, next you know uh, <laughs> what's after the Olympics I mean really I mean I couldn't imagine like 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 you don't really want to do it again because, like, it's like a drug, as you said. It's like an, it's an addiction in a way, maybe not yeah, in the, and the conventional it. sense. But. And that's exactly what happened, John. You said you'd nearly want to do it again. Well, I did want to do it again, and um, 
so I tried to take a break for a while from skiing. Uh, I wanted to change my life in a way that was uh, conducive to family living, to be in Ireland, perhaps work a bit, get a job, settle down, <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, and um, life, yeah, it's and uh, everything seemed to be in slow motion, and um, I couldn't quite. Um, I couldn't quite cope with the uh, everything being so pedestrian. I'm used to skiing at like uh, ridiculous sp- paces where you're having to make decisions. Being in the zone. Every couple of seconds. I'm not talking about a decision that, oh, what will I have for breakfast? Will I do this? Will I do that? Will I do tomorrow? Will I do next? I'm talking about, you know, constant. Oh, my goodness. Like, get out of this know, icy patch quick. It's like, just non-stop, non-stop. Yeah. And that... And not understanding that you can achieve that in life as well, in normal sense of life, that, you know, being present in life can bring fierce excitement. And but at that time in 2007, I was very much like, oh, I need this external thing in order that I can feel have that feeling. And and so uh, Mm. I said to Sophie, let's go to France, let's go back, I'll get back and you know, pursue my uh, instructing. So I picked up the instructing a little bit later on and he started doing the exams for that. And and then this thing called Ski Cross emerged. And that's a whole other story. So, yeah, but you, you left the Olympic to do the Olympics again, to, to follow your dream again, to get another run at it. You, you left that idea go? Um, Not too easily. No, I no, I didn't because uh, in 2007 I did one world championships and that was about it. I took a break. Then uh, the following year I started picking it up again and we're talking 2008 here. And again, my friend Angus, uh, who, I, who I lived with for many, many years, a Scottish guy, he said, oh, I'm, uh, I'm knocking the alpine racing on the head and I'm doing skier cross now. I was like, oh, this... Good, good for you, man. Yeah, well, good luck with that. And um, so he was telling me, oh, you know, racing this. I think you'd be really good at this. It would really suit you. And um, it really was something that I was drawn to. Uh, so this is where you race four at a time, and and it's I suppose the easiest way to describe is like motocross on skis. So you've got four guys at the start. Yeah. Um. And there's a series of jumps and obstacles and berms and you compete four at a time. And, well, that was taking the downhill, which is super exhilarating, onto a whole other level uh, where you're competing. You're literally falling off a slope, like? The, some of the courses were pretty hardcore, yeah. Like, it's not... <laughs> it, I'd not, need a parachute or something. Yeah, there's, even, even if you talk about it in terms of alpine racing, Jesus. so all these guys who... That's grew, zone stuff now yeah, again. All these guys who grew up, uh, you know, and you asked me a very good question earlier, you said, oh, how did it matter that you didn't have the, the background in, um, in alpine racing? So the skiing, the training, and all the, the races from a young age, I didn't start till I was 18 really properly. Um, well, in this instance, it was different because it was about balance and jumps and coordination, and I had all that from other sports and from. Okay. And so it was. It was basically there were a lot of a lot of racers who wouldn't even dream about going into a ski cross race. They're like, "Are you crazy?" Yeah. 
with three other guys racing alongside you? What if they crash into you? What if you crash into them? And uh, so basically the level of danger uh, was exponentially higher in ski cross racing. And I, and I raced at World Cup in ski cross. Whereas in the Alpine, uh, albeit that I had a great achievement in, in, the ski, in the Olympics, that wasn't a true representation of my actual level in terms of where I was internationally because they only had the best athletes, the four best athletes from each country. Yeah. It meant that instead of like 20 Swiss guys ahead of me, you know, there was only four. Four, yeah. And mm-hmm. the same with the US. So, you know, it's 31st is a, a, great, a great placing, but it doesn't represent my global ranking. Uh, however, in skier cross, I did achieve a really high global ranking. I think that the, I was in the top 60, 51 perhaps. Oh, so out of a lot more competitors, like look, it's a, it was a more niche sport, but we're talking about a global a global event that it was an Olympic sport, and uh, I was driven to go for the second Olympics to answer your question there earlier. Yeah, and because uh, the Olympics, as you said, it holds a special something. Obviously, it's magic. And, you know, magic. it's magic. Yeah. You know, the the atmosphere is electric. Meeting other athletes, the just the exuberance, the energy. Um, the the sense of like being all these combined stories meeting together and infusing from internationally and you know breaking down barriers you know racial barriers or you know uh, demographic barriers there's guys I know that did uh, I think Lamine Gaillet from Senegal I think he did the most amount of Olympics of anyone and he's uh, a, a Senegalese man from Paris and um, he would have been one of the only black skiers back in the 80s. And uh, I think he's done a whole lot of Olympics. And he's, he's also a, a really exciting guy just to be around in general. He, I think he's got the world record for some, like, uh, uh, for spearfishing. You know, he's, a re, you know, Barramundi and things like this. He So a lot of the guys that you meet in skiing, they're not your conventional uh, type of people. They're... Yeah. They're truth seekers, they're explorers, adventurers, searchers. Yeah, you're searching yeah. for something. I, I guess I was searching for an answer. <laughs> to what? Uh, Did you know what the question I was? I don't think I really knew what the question was, really. Like, uh, for me, it was about, like I say, the young, at a young age, want to be a rally driver. I want the exhilaration. And I think that um, that's something that we don't experience in our everyday life. We settle for... Normal. We settle for we settle for mediocre. You know, we settle for Asher. Ah, sure, look, you know, it's okay. I don't need to go for that run today. I don't need to feel alive today. I can feel alive tomorrow, yeah. or I can feel alive when um, when we go to holidays and maybe I can do something that's fun. But you know, we can feel alive every day, and that was perhaps what I was searching for. So the direction went towards the next Olympics and. Uh, Ski cross was being introduced not just from it was a new sport that was being added to the 2010 Olympics, new target, new goal. So I did two years uh, racing World Cup in ski cross, uh, and that was a global adventure. Whereas the alpine skiing was um, more European based, um, and uh, yeah, that was a whole other level of. <laughs> So of the, of, uh, uh, of uh, exhilaration, really. Yeah. So the the um, the ski cross was added to the Olympics in uh, two thousand ten. Two thousand ten. Did you think I'd go for it 
Det er en pik ski og cross. Ja, og jeg var definitely, I was definitely close, like you know. Um, in Japan, I suppose that that was my chance to qualify. There was a World Championships in Japan in 2009, and um, it was a case of will I go, won't I go? Sophie was uh, pregnant with our second child, and um, I don't know, I don't know how she, I don't know how she's put up with me for this long. <laughs> and uh she's finally getting a chance to to come down off the whole uh insanity of my life story and uh get, get getting a bit of a break great support Stella. yeah like she, she's she gives has given me so much in order to facilitate my uh my i would say my dream my mm-hmm. vision but ultimately i would say um my um addiction all right because mm-hmm. i think that's really what it is yeah it's it's got to be, hasn't it? Like you yeah. gotta be driven like Yeah, I think the ski the ski cross uh really was dangerous. You know, Angus um so when I was racing in Japan uh I was really focused on getting into the Olympics and I was looking for a top thirty five finish in the World Cup that would have secured me a place and I was around look, I was around the forty, forty five and I thought if one good run and I could do it. Um, in a training run before the the actual event I had probably one of the most spectacular crashes of my skiing career and I've had a lot I broke both my thumbs and I injured my knee Jesus. in a kind of a, like imagine if you were on a motocross bike and you uh, you were heading for the ramp and it was a very high speed course and um, you went off to the side of the ramp and you missed the landing of the ramp okay because you know you, it's on a flat this this jump this particular jump so you need to jump up and then it's flat there's a tabletop it's called and then you have to r- arrive on the other side of the, of the uh, drop yeah and you got to get it right so that you land you don't want to jump too far or you miss the drop or you don't want to jump too short because you'll hit the top hit the top and yeah. you, you, you bounce off so the top so you have to get it right you got to get it right yeah. well in this in this instance I was overtaking uh, my friend who I was racing alongside and I got the line wrong and I overshot the landing and it was catastrophic and um, that was the end of that Jeez. so I broke both my thumbs and I ended up like I think I I I, I took some painkillers and I went and I did the time trial to qualify for the so you must. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa steady up. Yeah, yeah. I well I didn't go all the way to Japan to go home uh, without uh, you know without so giving it a good shot. Yeah, so I had two yeah. broken thumbs and um and uh, my knee was kind of I, I tore the patella ligament a bit, and um, a bit. yeah, not too badly. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't imagine skiing injured like. Yeah, it was a real shame because uh, I was uh, I was in an exceptional form, and I had I had Jesus. a breakthrough while I was in Japan. Uh, one of the coaches from the US team had this amazing technology. I was actually thinking about yeah. technology and skiing. Yeah, 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 something that we never had. Yeah, um, yeah, but the technology was emerging that you could superimpose the skiers on top of each other. So um, you could uh, have the video camera on the slope, and you could take five video runs, 
and you could watch um, yourself five times and you could see where you you were losing time. Or you could put yourself against another athlete and watch how where he was gaining time. Gaining time. So you're watching the gate and you're thinking, he's going two metres wider there and he's accelerating at the end of the turn. So it's a bit like this is the coach you never had. Yeah, so I got a little glimpse of what some of the other guys had. I think, uh, you know, the Canadians were just, they were destroying everybody because it was their Olympics, remember? Mm. So they were pumping a lot of money into this. And the Canadians are leaders in the world in terms of sports anyway. You know, they come up with a lot of the, the best uh, strategy and psychology, engineering psychology, and um, they really drive it forward. So having a glimpse at this uh, new uh, analysis and saying, wow, I see that movement. That really makes sense. And with ski cross, there's huge jumps everywhere, but you don't want to be spending all your time jumping and in the air. You want to be keeping the skis in contact with the snow as much as possible so that you can accelerate as much as possible and basically beat the three other guys you can alongside go, you. Can you go faster on the snow than you can in the air? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you're, if you're airborne, yeah. you know, and you're kind of overshooting the landing, what you really want is you want to spend as much time on the, on the snow as possible, you know, to get the most amount of acceleration. So if you land at the bottom of the flat, like oh, I yeah, said, because you decrease, you know, you just, the air, you there's decrease. no acceleration. Yeah, you want yeah. to land on the ramp and then accelerate yeah, down the yeah, ramp. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah, for me, I was really, uh, I was really in great form, and um, and you were injured, and you're you're skiing again. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I ever really had much of a chance after that crash. Like, I mean, I was just up at the start, and uh, the impacts were pretty pretty hefty as well on the jump. So, you know, it was disappointing. Um, I guess at that point to, to say right, well, look, that's that out the window, and. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I was injured and it was a, it was like, right, that's that. That's over now. You know, my season had to stop there. The following year I went back and I just couldn't, f- I didn't feel it anymore. Really? Yeah, I didn't feel it. Well, Louis was born, my second child. And um, he was born while I was on the way back from Japan on the plane. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like... Um, Did that kind of tell you something? Like- yeah, you know, look, I suppose Liam's birth was traumatic. You know, um, Liam's now uh, 16 and uh, he was in intensive care in Tralee and there was a certain kind of escapism attached with this, uh, you know, addiction to the nowness of skiing. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. So like, um, I think it's a sense that people have in business as well. You know, they become, they become driven like in. It's exciting. I mean, it's your life, as you say, you know. But at a certain point, like, you've got to say, what is this about? Like, what am I doing this for? My son, Sophie, is in hospital uh, now with, you know, our second child. And so I arrived back into Cork with two broken thumbs and my, both my hands in a cast. And uh, I wasn't going to be changing too many nappies. So uh, at that point, I was like, look, man, that's enough. Um, so that was my last real serious race in 2009 in Japan. And I've dedicated, uh, you know, myself a lot more to my family. Um, albeit, like, um, struggling a lot with kind of the, the aftermath of being, uh, you know, uh, an, an Olympian and, an, an, yeah. an, and a full-time professional athlete from, I would say, from about the age of 16. 
Yeah. You know, I was always interested in sports. So 16 to 32 or whatever, and, um, you know, 30. Do you miss it, Toss? Like, you must do. Uh, well. I don't want to push it, but, like, like, I just think, do you feel that with something else now? I mean, with the coaching, do you get as much satisfaction out of it now, coaching young fellas, and I which do, you must do? Like, I do. I get a huge amount of uh, satisfaction from coaching. So I went and finished the exams, and, you know, there was no real racing after that, but I would go for seasons where I would work and instruct and look, it was very well paid. And, uh, you know, we've had several recessions in Ireland, you know, around, the, you know, doors, yeah. yeah. So it was the all coinciding, you know, the buzz, the buzz, the, the, the buzz that we were on in Ireland was also coming to an end and my buzz was coming to an end <laughs> and it was time <laughs> and it was time to pay back <laughs> and there was plenty of paying back you know yeah um the pain was back and paying back and yeah, yeah. look and um so you're, you're it's like you're facing you came out of this massive cloud this 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 world you know yeah I, I couldn't imagine what it's like but i'd love to be there myself anybody would dream of that like but it is and you came to reality as you call it mm. like civilian life nearly you know yeah well i suppose um the reality is what we choose it to be so i chose for as long as i could get away with it i chose a different reality and being back in ireland and uh facing the reality of my situation that i was in involved in business and that I was in that I'd make taken personal choices that had got me in, into a situation where I was avoiding taking the personal responsibility and I was using um, uh, skiing as a as a way of uh, avoiding you know facing my personal reality and I think that since then through teaching and through um, meeting other instructors who I worked with uh, there was one particular guy who's uh, from France. He said, when I was uh, teaching the kids, he said, listen, men, so we're, I'm, I'm instructing a group of children from uh, Saint-Ouen, which is one of the worst, uh, poorest areas in France. And those children would have been around 11, 12, similar age to Louis is now. Um, and they would have been brought from the, 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 the ghettos of, you know, around Paris and they would have been brought up to the mountains, and it was a really amazing thing, uh, oh. you know. So it's one thing to teach holiday makers who have a lot of privilege, and, you know... It's a bit like a kid that hasn't seen the sea, you know? Yeah, and these kids, they'd never been in the mountains. Mm. And I felt that was really, really special. Uh, I, you know, it's uh, vacances, loisirs, young children who'd never seen the mountains. You know, they may, may, may be Polish or... Uh, Colombian or uh, you know uh, French Nigerian or from Ghana and you know but all these lovely kids and they're just full of energy and my my idea was initially uh, oh yeah and I got to teach these kids how to ski you know I got to show them how to <laughs> ski and be really good skiers become the best skier maybe yeah let's yeah. get them to be the best skiers and then my friend uh, Orti David Orti Goza um, he said listen these kids man. <laughs> I want you to a, know. I know it's natural that you want them to be the best. I want you to know where they're coming from. Yeah. So we watched the movie La Haine, which is La Haine. La Haine. It's a great French film. Okay. And um, Vincent Cassel plays uh, the part in that movie, and it's set around the ghettos in Paris, 
and it shows that these children, their reality is completely different from my reality, a reality of privilege and of um, opportunity, uh, where you know my parents were willing to support my adventure and my dream. Uh, these kids are coming from a place where there was no dream, I don't think. No parents, maybe? Uh, yeah, and in some cases... Um, horrendous horrific stories uh the day that rt told me this um uh there was one of my young skiers who who was injured and i've had a very good track record of not having too many injuries but this was one in particular he was in the last run and i was maybe pushing it a little bit and i would say that i put the you know that i wanted them to challenge them on the slope rather than just saying look man let them have a bit of fun and that was a turning point for me understanding that it wasn't about uh, achieving it w- the, the goal of being better. It was about, you know, being relaxed and saying, we can go down the easy route. We can sing a song. We can jump. We can, you know, we can make animal noises. We can, you know, we can overtake, you know, we can ski comfortably on a green slope rather than pushing it on, on, a, on a blue run because, you know, we want to achieve the blue run. Um... So the young lad was injured and uh, the animator, the, the man who was responsible for the group, said to me afterwards, Jesus, that, that kid's got no luck. You know, and I said, oh, what, what's that? And he said, well, you know, his dad's in prison. You know what I mean? And, like, you could just see his the demeanour. I'm talking about a 10-year-old kid and, like, he just didn't have any spark in him. And so I realised that, you know, it wasn't okay to be... You know, I had to look at these kids individually and understand that their experience in the mountains was magical and that I had the opportunity to create that magic for them. And uh, RT said, yeah, watch this movie and let's have a chat and um, understand that, like, where these guys are coming from. They don't care. They might never come skiing again. Give them a chance to see that just for one moment that there there's a better life out there, that... They can be uh, present and they can have a memory or uh, understanding, perhaps, that by changing your surroundings, you can indeed change how you how you experience life. And um, uh, for me, the greatest gift I have from all of the skiing, it's not the memories of the Olympics or anything like that. It's just I really, really enjoy instructing those particular kids purely because there's such a sense of uh, gratitude and appreciation when when you show that this environment is um, a place for expression, personal expression, and that you, it's required that you take personal responsibility and that you respect the other people around you. It is the last space of freedom, like skiing in the mountains. You know, In, in Europe, there is no speed limits. In America, they're, they're strict on that. But if you want to ski in Europe, you know, you, you, you get a lift ticket, a pair of skis, and you could put yourself into a, on the top of Coran Tool. I've seen people die. I've seen, you know, uh, people uh, fall to their death or whatever. So you have to be careful and you have to be responsible. And that's something that we're constantly avoiding. So maybe that's what skiing has taught me uh, to this point is that, you know, to be truly present in the moment, it's not necessarily about being addicted to exhilar- exhilaration or, the, or whatever. It's about creating magic in the moment with the people around you.
Yeah, like you you were in the magic of the skiing environment and it's it's all magic. You know, it's still it's about it's about that magic still, isn't it? Well, I think we can create the magic no matter where we are. Yeah. If we if we um like there's someone now somewhere, some young fella thinking, Jesus. Could I could I I like skiing. Do you think could I ever do that like? Do you know? Well, I guess whether it's skiing or whether it's uh, cycling or whether it's rowing or whether it's uh, football, I don't think it really matters. Just or, go for it. Or whether it's, uh, you know, finally getting around to doing your uh, podcasts. Yeah. You know, yeah, like you. you're creating magic in yeah. your life and that's... It's all about creation. It's not an creating. external, it's not something external anymore. It's something that you're doing in the present moment where yeah. you are and that's... Being able to bring all that um, experience from skiing and bring it into my life in a way that's that's present and and focused, um, you know, there's a lot been happening uh, in the recent time for me. But again, that there's let's not go into that. Yeah, you remind me of uh, when I was watching Olympics. Now again, uh, it's going back to that again, where the winners, they, I think they got twenty five thousand dollars or something, and they gave it away to some uh, charity to help kids. And it kind of snowballed into there. So even when they won the Olympics, they were still thinking, do you know what? What is this? I'm going to give it away. You know, you know there's some sort of uh, realisation that yeah. comes to everybody, maybe. I think it's really important you know? that, um, you know, people listening would understand that there's a whole... Why is the Olympics such a special thing? There's two reasons. First of all, you have the Olympic spirit and you you have people who are creating magic all around them. And then you have the other element of the Olympics, which is the corporate element. Because it's a brand, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. And while we sense the magic, we associate it with, uh, you know, achievement and... um, you know, if I do this, I'll be that. If I associate with that product, I'll be, you know, I'll have I'll have what they have. But really, it's about understanding that when those guys are like... like understanding said, the magic. Yeah, you know, it's it doesn't need to be externalized. It's something that, you know, everybody can have uh, if you just accept that, you know, we're personally responsible for for our own existence, where losing means checking out for good. Yeah, you know we can do what we want, really, and uh, yeah, know, if if we believe if we believe in it, and um, you can wake up in the morning, and you can put your best foot forward, and you can say, right, I'm gonna be positive and optimistic today, and I'm gonna see what life brings, and I'll take I'll roll with the punches, and if I have a failure, that's okay. I'll hold my head up high and I'll keep going, and 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 like I said, the accumulation of failures or perceived failures. Uh, shows you that um, that's just part of it. And and our society, the corporate side of that society, would like to tell you that there are no failures. Mm. When when the opposite is true, I think really like uh, it's an accumulation of failures that are, are bring bring something special about in your life. And I think uh, so many young people are afraid to go out and embarrass themselves or to, to seem uh, like... Uh, a failure because they tried that and usher, you know. So yeah. that that answers that question, I think. Yeah, you know, it's some sort of like, even when I was doing the podcast, I was kind of like when I started out doing it, there's this thing they call the imposter syndrome, you know. 
and it raises his ugly head. I don't listen to those negative, that negative shite too much, right? Um, but you must have felt that yourself, even with the skiing. But what I'm saying is, you know, when you started off, maybe, um, what advice would you, because that's a big thing to overcome for anyone, anyone, you know, Jesus, who do you think you are to be great, wonderful and fantastic? You know, do it, trying whatever you're going to try. Because we all grew up with certain conditioning patterns, you know, mm. uh, especially that kid that has no father and he's looking at the, you know, he's looking at the, scope, the slopes going, geez, I was told I was useless and no good for nothing. And sure, Jesus Christ, I can't uh, even stand up on the ski, do you know? And there he is with his bust up knee. Uh, yeah. yeah, that is, that is, that is what's happening. And uh, we believe it. Mm. We believe that we're limited. We believe that we should stay in our box. We believe that we can be happy tomorrow and we can be alive tomorrow. But maybe you can be alive today and you can go for a walk and you can look at the splendor of your surrounding. I mean, I love Killarney. I'm here in one of the places that I love. I mean, we come over from Kenmare all the time and walk around the National Park and every time I'm blown away. And I think that's important. Spend a lot of time in nature and that will bring you into the moment. Yeah. Would you do it all again, Toss? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a few things I would change, no doubt. Yeah, definitely. Um, but then, you know, you can't, uh, I don't look back. Uh, I'm very happy You're where I am right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah an I'm an optimist, yeah, yeah, for sure. What advice would you give to any, anybody setting out in this, this trail? Or in, indeed, look, you can, you can swap it, swap the road skiing for some, for business, for anything. What advice would you give people? I think that... For chasing their dreams. Yeah, I think that live the dream. Don't chase the dream because if you're chasing something, it, it, it gives the idea that it's not achievable and that you're, you're always in pursuit of that. Whereas if you, if you are the dream and you live the dream and you take personal responsibility for where you are in that uh, situation, whether it's if you choose to be a business person, you have to accept that like it might not work. And you have to accept that this was your choice. And everything, everything that we do is our own personal choice. And we've chosen that path. So don't listen to people when they're saying you can't do this and you can't do that. You know, if it's something that you choose to do, do it 100%. And if it fails, well, that's okay too. Yeah. Tass, look, it's been um, magic is the word, you know. Thanks for sharing the magic, you know. And uh, Tass Foley, Olympian, um, thanks for coming in to banter at the counter. It's been great talking to you. It's been great talking to you too, John. I, was on, I wasn't sure what to expect, so I came in with an open heart and an open mind, and I'm really delighted to see you today. And I hope your listeners enjoyed the, enjoyed the banter. Sure, it's just a chat, really. It is, and it, it, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good pointers in that, and I hope people enjoy it, and I'm sure they will, you know. Look, thanks so much, Tass, and a good luck in the future and in your coaching and whatever you choose to do, yeah? Been great. Delighted Cheers. to have been here. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it, unfortunately. We've reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us and listening. And if you want to hear more from us, please subscribe to our podcast. And details on how to do that are on our Facebook page, Banter at the Counter, and soon on www.banterattheCounter.com. Also, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram if you want to keep in touch. So until next time, mind yourselves, please stay safe and be positive.